You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Over the years, colourful pictures have often been conjured up of the devil as a great supernatural monster, a fallen angel with horns and hooves, usually carrying a three-pronged fork. Well, I suppose today many people wouldn't want to subscribe to that rather extreme description. Nevertheless, it is still widely believed that the devil, or Satan, as he's sometimes called, is a supernatural creature, and that he has enormous power for evil, that he's constantly trying to destroy God's work amongst men and women. It's thought by some that he secretly whispers in a person's ear and tempts that person to do evil. Well, Christadelphians are saying that there is no such supernatural devil. I remember many years ago when I was still a student, so you can tell it was a long time ago, I picked up a pamphlet um, written by, I think it was a member of the Church of England, criticising Christadelphians. And when the author got to this particular subject, this is what she had to say, or some of what she had to say. Christadelphians deny the existence of a personal devil called Satan, a fact in which Satan himself must take great delight, since it is an idea he likes spread about himself. Well, that was her view. But, you know, we need to leave leave aside tradition and look and see what the Bible actually has to say. And that's what we're going to do this evening. So I am going to ask you to turn up a few Bible passages, because it's the Bible passages, really, that count. And when we put those all together, then we really get a good comprehensive picture of what the Bible is saying to us about this subject. But it might just first be worth asking, why does it matter? If people in other churches want to believe in a supernatural monster, a supernatural devil, and Christadelphians don't, does it really matter? Does it make any difference? And the answer is, it does matter, and it does make a difference, for this reason. There's a verse in the first epistle of John, it's chapter 3 and verse 8, that says this, For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So John there, in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 8, tells us very clearly that Jesus came, he was revealed, in order to destroy the works of the devil. So if we want to understand at all God's plan for human salvation, if we want to understand the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, necessarily we must understand what is meant by the Bible devil. So it does matter. It's important. We're going to try to follow this through as logically as we can, and I'd like to start with the section we read. So let's come back to the book of Genesis. We're going to begin here in the Garden of Eden with the serpent. So it's Genesis chapter 2, and uh, we'll just pick up verse 7 to begin with. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. So God created man, he became a living, breathing creature, he was put into the Garden of Eden and told to look after it. And then God gave him a commandment, 
very simply in verse 16, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So that's very straightforward, isn't it? Man is not allowed to eat of this particular tree, all the other trees of the garden he can freely eat of. And then when we come to chapter 3, we're introduced to the serpent. Now, it's just worth noting at the very end of Genesis chapter 1 that we're told, God saw everything that he'd made, everything he'd made, and behold, it was very good. So that, therefore, must also include the serpent. He saw everything he'd made, and behold, it was very good. So when we come to chapter 3, we're introduced to this serpent, and he is just simply introduced to us as a beast of the field, isn't he? In verse 1 there. There's no reference to the devil here at all. And, you know, we have this conversation between the serpent and the woman. Hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And, and we know this, I'm sure, all of us very well. And the the man and the woman gave in to the temptation they they sinned and as a result of that the sentence of death was passed verse 19 in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground for out of it wast thou taken for dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return but this situation was not caused by a supernatural devil if you look at verses 12 to 14 of this chapter when challenged, the man blames the woman for what had happened. The woman blames the serpent. Now, according to Milton's famous poem, Paradise Lost, that kind of uh, summarises, if you like, the traditional view, what had happened here was that the devil had possessed the serpent. Well, if that's the case, then presumably the serpent could have blamed the devil, <clears throat> but he doesn't, because in reality he had no such devil to blame. What is more, the punishment that is meted out here to the serpent shows that it was only an animal. Let's look at verse 14, where God says, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Cursed above all cattle. Every beast of the field. Well, surely that would have been a totally inappropriate way to have described a fallen angel. But the Apostle Paul says something about this incident, which is very useful to, for us to, to look at. And I'd like to bring you to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, because Paul's comment on this shows that there really was no supernatural devil involved only those that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, he's writing to believers in Christ. I just want you to notice what he says in this verse. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve, 
because a supernatural devil put this into his mind? No, he doesn't say that, does he? I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, his craftiness, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now that verse is very helpful because it tells us that it was actually the serpent, quite simply, in Eden, who was the tempter. And his power as tempter, Paul attributes to the serpent's own subtlety, his own craftiness. So there is no evidence at all in the Genesis record here to support the idea of a supernatural devil. As a matter of fact, the word devil in the singular does not occur in the Old Testament at all. It doesn't occur anywhere. You get the word devils in the plural in connection with idol worship, but the singular devil does not occur in the Old Testament. It's a New Testament word. Well, that's curious, isn't it, if we're to believe in the orthodox devil. But we do find the word Satan in the Old Testament. And that's what I'd like us to move on to now. And we need to come to the book of Numbers. So we're just going to go over a few books to the book of Numbers and chapter 22. Satan is a Hebrew word which has been transliterated, if you like, just transferred across into the English language. The word Satan means adversary, enemy, or accuser. An adversary, an enemy, an accuser. And the first time we read the word Satan in the Bible is here in Numbers chapter 22. Now that's curious as well, isn't it, really? If we are to believe in the sort of traditional supernatural devil, you don't read about Satan in the Bible until you get well into Old Testament history. We're now at the time when the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, and this is the first occurrence of Satan. It's Numbers 22 and verse 22. And we read this. God's anger was kindled because Balaam went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary, and that's the Hebrew word Satan, which elsewhere is put in the text as Satan, but here it's been translated as adversary. An angel stood in the way as an adversary, a Satan, to Balaam. Now, this is the time, as we say, when the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, and this prophet Balaam had been told by God that he was not to go and curse the Israelites, but he'd been promised money for doing this, so he disobeyed God and he went anyway. And so what we find in verse 22 is that God is angry with Balaam for his disobedience, and an angel of the Lord stood in the way against Balaam. And the word occurs again in verse 32. The angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thy nasties three times? Behold, I went out to withstand thee. Or if, if you've got a margin there, it probably says to be an adversary unto thee. And that's the word Satan again, because thy way is perverse before me. Now, quite clearly in this incident, Satan is not the name of a person or a creature, is it? It's just an ordinary word meaning adversary or enemy. And that's what our translators have recognised, and so that's why they've put adversary into the text. And who was this Satan, this, this adversary? 
Was it some sort of evil fallen angel? No, not at all. It was actually, as verse 22 says, an angel of the Lord. And this was an angel doing God's bidding because God was angry with Balaam for his disobedience. So it wasn't some sort of fallen evil angel at all. And, and, you know, we can carry on looking through the Old Testament and find other passages that use the word Satan in a very similar way. Let me just quote this verse to you from um, 2 Samuel chapter 19, it's verse 22. When King David speaks to a group of men, so it's not just one, a group of men, and he says, What have I to do with you, ye sons of Zeruiah, that ye should this day be an adversary unto me? And you, there you've got a group of men who were an adversary to David. That's how he saw it. They were uh, withstanding him. So that's how the word Satan is used. And in these cases, our translators have recognized what is being said, and they've simply translated the Hebrew word as adversary. But there are other places, as we go through the Old Testament, where the word Satan occurs in the original, and instead of translating it and making the meaning clear, the translators have simply put Satan in the text with a capital S. And it's those occasions that tend to cause the difficulties. And I suppose one of the classic examples of this is in the book of Job. So let's turn across to the book of Job now. But we need to bear in mind when we're looking at this what the word Satan actually means, enemy or adversary. But you come to the book of Job, and in the very first verse, Job is described as a, a God-fearing man with many possessions. Then you come down to verse 6. Verse 6 of Job chapter 1 says this, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Now, very often, you see, people will read that section, and they'll say, well, there you've got it. A supernatural Satan at a meeting in heaven amongst the angels. But as soon as you make a statement like that, you have made a number of assumptions. First, you've assumed that the term sons of God that's used here necessarily applies to angels, and that Satan was an angel, albeit a fallen one. And secondly, you've assumed that the meeting before the Lord took place in heaven. And that assumption is made because of the expression in verse 6, they came to present themselves before the Lord, God's dwelling places in heaven. And then at the end in verse 12, Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. But are those assumptions valid? Well, first of all, think about the expression, sons of God. 
Now, there is a passage later on in the book of Job where the term sons of God does appear to be a reference to angels. But if we take the Bible as a whole, it's often used of ordinary human beings, sons of God. You might want to keep your place in Job, but just, just come on for a moment to the prophecy of Hosea. So we go through the, the, the large prophets and we come to the prophecy of Hosea and chapter 1. Now, at the time of Hosea's ministry, God foretold that the people of Israel were going to go into captivity because of their waywardness. They were going to be cast out of his sight, but not forever. And the prophet foretells that the nation of Israel will eventually repent and live in his sight again. And so then we come to verse 10 of Hosea chapter 1, and notice what it says here. The number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. Sons of God, sons of the living God. Well, who are these sons of God that Hosea is talking about? Well, clearly in this context, it's a reference to the people of Israel. It's not referring to God's angels in heaven. Sons of God. You find a similar thing in the New Testament. Just think about these words. They're quite well known at the beginning of 1 John chapter 3, where John says, writing to believers in Christ, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. And there he's referring to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's often a reference then to men and women who worship God in contrast to those who do not. Now when you come back to the book of Job in chapter 1, these sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan came and then when the meeting was over it says Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Well surely that could only happen in heaven. God's dwelling place is in heaven. So this meeting before the Lord must have been in heaven. Well, no, not necessarily, because in the Old Testament we find that when people came before God's appointed representatives on earth, like priests and judges, they were said to be standing before the Lord. Let me just give you one example of that. You need to come now, um, if you've got enough fingers, keep your place in Job, and come back to the book of Judges. It's not necessary to go to heaven to stand before the Lord. That's, that's the point. So we come to the... Uh, did I say Judges? I meant Deuteronomy. Uh, book of Deuteronomy and chapter 19. It's the book of Deuteronomy and chapter 19. And verse 17. And just notice what this verse says. Deuteronomy 19, verse 17. Then both the men between whom the controversy is, shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges which shall be in those days. So here then, if you've got some men and there's a controversy between them, they had to come and stand before the Lord, but they didn't go to heaven, did they? No, it says here, they had to come and stand before God's priests and his judges. So all of this was done on earth, even though they're said to be standing before the Lord. 
Later, if we were to come to the, um, the last book, uh, the last chapter, rather, of the book of Joshua, Joshua, we find, in Joshua 24, called the elders of the tribes of Israel to Shechem, where it says they presented themselves before God. Well, how did they do that? What it means is they came to a place that was appointed for the worship of God. That's Joshua 24, verse 1. It was all done on earth. Or take another example. In the New Testament, Mary, the mother of Jesus, brought the young child Jesus to the temple in Luke chapter 2, verse 22. She brought the young child Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem. And what does it say? To present him to the Lord. But all this presenting to the Lord, standing before the Lord, it was all done on earth. Now, when you come back to Job in chapter 1 and verse 12, as far as Satan leaving the presence of the Lord is concerned, well, that's exactly what Cain did in Genesis 4 after he just murdered his brother Abel. He went out, it says, from the presence of the Lord, and he certainly wasn't in heaven at the time. What it means is he left the place that was appointed for the worship of God. So when we just come again now to Job chapter 1 and we sort of bring these strands from scripture to bear, Job here is most likely giving us a picture of sons of God, a group of men and women who came together to worship at the appointed place, in the presence no doubt of the appointed priest of these days, and in this sense they came to present themselves before the Lord, and they did it on earth. Satan comes amongst them, posing as one of the worshippers. You don't need a capital S there. There isn't one in the original. That's just the translator's idea. The Hebrew makes no distinction between capital letters and others. It just means an adversary. So the adversary comes amongst these worshippers, posing as one of them. It's not his name. He was an adversary. In reality, of course, he was, je he was a jealous enemy of Job. And he maliciously slanders Job's name, as we've read. He suggests that Job's allegiance to God was of a, a purely mercenary character. And if God took away his blessings, well, soon enough Job would renounce his God. Now, for the perfecting of Job, because God had a purpose with this man, and in order to show that the adversary was wrong, God allowed the trouble desired by the adversary to come upon Job. But the book of Job is clear that it was God's power that brought this trouble on Job. It wasn't some power that belonged to the adversary. Uh, just have a look at chapter 2 of the book of Job and verse 3. Where the Lord says to the adversary, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity? Although thou moves me against him, says God, to destroy him without cause. It was God's power that brought the trouble on Job. It was not some power that belonged to the adversary. Job never attributed his affliction to a supernatural evil being, a rebel angel. But rather he says to his wife in verse 10, Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. He recognised that it was the hand of God that had brought this trial upon him. 
And perhaps most clearly of all, when you get to the very last chapter of the book of Job, and you come to chapter 42, so, um, you know, when, when the, the trials that Job had to face were past, Job chapter 42 and verse 11 says this, all his brethren, his sisters, his acquaintances came to him, and do you notice what it says in verse 11? They comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. So the book of Job does not teach us to believe in a supernatural Satan, a fallen angel. The word Satan, as we've said, basically just means adversary. It can refer to a good adversary, as in um, Numbers 22, when it was the angel of the Lord who withstood Balaam, or it could be an evil adversary. And we have to say more frequently it is used in the latter sense of an evil adversary. Now, the word Satan is carried forward into the New Testament. So let's just take one example, shall we, from the New Testament. And I bring you to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, where Jesus describes one of his own disciples as a Satan. Matthew 16 and verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offence unto me, for thou savourest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. So Satan then, a Hebrew word, has been transferred now into the Greek New Testament and then, of course, into English. But in this passage, when Jesus rebukes Peter, he's rebuking him for his lack of understanding, isn't he? Peter just couldn't accept what the Lord was saying to him at this time about suffering and going up to Jerusalem. And, and, uh, and that's why Peter stood in his way. Peter had been called to follow his Lord. Follow me. Come ye after me. And on this occasion, he was standing in front of the Lord, blocking his path. And the Lord seeks to put him in his rightful place. Get behind me, adversary. You see, that's not Peter's name, is it? Jesus describes him as an adversary. You don't need the capital S. Greek manuscripts do not differentiate between capital letters and others. In fact, in the early manuscripts, it was all written in capitals. Peter here was an adversary. He was trying to persuade the Lord not to do what he knew had to be done. Well, this has conveniently brought us now into the New Testament, and we can think about the word devil itself. As we say, it's a Greek word, not a Hebrew one, so you only find the word devil singular in the New Testament. The New Testament word for devil is diabolos. And on many occasions, this Greek word diabolos has been lifted out of the Greek text of the New Testament and almost unaltered put into our English Bibles as devil, diabolos, devil. The word actually means slanderer, false accuser. And on a number of occasions, it has actually been translated that way. Um, just come to Paul's first letter to Timothy, if you will. First Timothy, 
and chapter 3, where here we have the Greek word diabolos, translated devil very often, but here we've actually got a, a, a trans, translation of it, rather than just simply putting it in the text as devil. So here we are, it's 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11. Even so, he says, must their wives be grave, not slanderers. Although it's in the plural there, that is the Greek word diabolos. And here, of course, he's speaking about ordinary human beings, isn't he? He's talking about a group of women, not slanderers. And then you come to the second letter of Timothy, just move over a page or two, chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul speaks about the situation in the last days. And then he says in verse 3 that men would be, without natural affection, truce-breakers, false accusers. Or if you've got another version, it may say slanderers again. The AV says false accusers, and that again is the Greek diabolos. And again, it's talking about people, isn't it? Not some sort of supernatural being. Or well, how about this? In John chapter 6 and verse 70, Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? <coughs> Diabolos. And we all know who he was talking about. He was talking about Judas Iscariot, wasn't he? Who was indeed a false accuser of his Lord, in that it was Judas who was going to betray him. You see, in none of these passages is there any suggestion of a supernatural devil. These devils are all human beings. But having said that, that the word devil means, uh, means slanderer or false accuser, we do have to go a stage further and note that the New Testament takes hold of this word devil and it uses it in a special way. And to get at the special way, I think perhaps the best passage to turn up is Hebrews chapter 2. So it's a word then that means slanderer, false accuser, but the New Testament does use it in a special way. And we just need to have a think about this for a moment now. Hebrews chapter 2, where the writer is talking to us about the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to look at verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, this is talking about Jesus himself, also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, we need to think about these two verses. Here, the writer is speaking about Christ's children, that is those whom he came to save. And he says that they're made of flesh and blood and that Jesus himself had the same nature. Do you notice how it's emphasised? He also himself likewise took part of the same. And that's what the Bible does. You know, it piles up words for emphasis. You don't need all those words to make sense, do you? It could just simply have said, he took part of the same. It would have made sense. But the Bible says... He also himself likewise took part of the same. And this piling up of words you get when something is really important and we need to take note of it. That Christ came and he had the same nature as us. It's emphasised. 
But when you look again at verses 14 and 15, they're making a number of points to us that are really important. First, we're being told that Christ came to destroy the devil. Secondly, the devil is that which has the power of death. Thirdly, Christ partook of human nature and died in order to destroy the devil. And finally, in doing so, he delivered others from the devil and from death. Now, when you think about those points, they pose enormous problems for those who want to believe in the traditional supernatural devil. After all, how could the coming of Jesus in flesh and blood, weak human nature, and then his death, possibly destroy such a devil? It would leave that kind of devil more powerful than ever, surely. But the teaching of these verses is that the devil is that which has the power of death, and in order to destroy the devil, Jesus had to share our weak human nature and then die himself. Now, if we can identify from Scripture what it is that has the power of death, because it was that that Christ came to destroy, then we, we shall know for sure what is meant by the Bible devil. So how do we find out? Well, keep your finger here in Hebrews 2. And I'd like you just to compare the two verses we've read here with another verse in chapter 9 of Hebrews, verse 26, which says exactly the same thing, only in different words. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, says this. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now just compare the phrases you've got in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, with what you've got here in chapter 9, verse 26. Chapter 2, verse 14 spoke about through death, that is through his own death. And here in chapter 9, verse 26, that is paralleled by the expression, by the sacrifice of himself. In chapter 2, verse 14, he came that he might destroy the devil. In chapter 9, verse 26, what did he come for? To put away sin. So when you say then that Christ came to destroy the devil, it's the same as saying that Christ came to destroy sin. And sin, as we saw back in Genesis 3, by God's decree, is punishable by death. So it's sin that has the power of death. And once we've grasped this, we can find this teaching in many places as we read through Scripture. It is sin that has the power of death. Just come back to Paul's letter to the Romans for a moment. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and this is the Apostle Paul writing, and he says this, Wherefore, as by one man, you notice that, not a supernatural devil, a supernatural evil being, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. By one man, says Paul, 
and death by sin. So it's sin then that has the power of death. So the real devil then is sin. And devil is a word that's used in scripture to represent sin. That's a special sense in which it's being used. If we just come across to the epistle, nearly to the end of the New Testament, to the epistle of James, James speaks to us about the source of sin. So the real devil is sin, and devil is a word that's used to represent sin in Scripture. Now, when you come to James chapter 1 and verse 14, James is talking about the source of sin. And if it comes down to a supernatural devil supernatural evil being well we ought to read about it here in these verses because that's what James is talking about the source of sin but he doesn't mention that at all just just have a look at James chapter 1 verse 14 every man he says is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust his own desire and enticed then when lust hath conceived it bringeth forth sin and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death now, you see, they're remarkable verses, aren't they? If a personal devil really does beguile people to sin, then why doesn't James say so straight out? But what he does say very clearly is that the source of our temptation to do wrong is in our own inward desires and the world of man around us. And when we give in to the temptation, the result is sin. And, of course, sin leads to death. And the Bible throughout stresses man's natural waywardness and proneness to sin. Do you remember these words that were spoken by the Lord Jesus during his ministry in Mark chapter 7? He said, that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things, said Jesus, come from within and defile the man. And the Old Testament had the same message. The prophet Jeremiah, for example, said that the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Just come to um, Paul's letter to the Galatians now in chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And verse 16. And here Paul writes to a group of believers in Christ, and this is what he says to them. Galatians 5, verse 16. Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, now there is here a contrast between flesh and spirit. God is spirit, Scripture tells us. So walking after the Spirit is walking or living in God's way. But when, on the other hand, we just simply seek to satisfy our own natural desires, well, in Bible terms, we are said to be walking after the flesh. And you can see what he says about that in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, and so on. He gives a very similar list, doesn't he, to those that we just quoted from the words of the Lord Jesus. It's a real list of the world's evils. But here's the point. The works of the flesh spoken of by the Apostle Paul here are referred to in 1 John 3, in those words with which we began, as 
the works of the devil. The works of the flesh, the works of the devil, it's the same thing. So the great enemy of God then, the devil, is this sin tendency that dwells in every member of the human race. It's men and women following their own natural desires and rejecting the authority of God. We read earlier in Hebrews chapter 2 that it was Jesus' mission to destroy the devil. Now, though Jesus was indeed the Son of God, because God was his Father, he was also the Son of Mary. So he was a member of the human race. He partook of flesh and blood. In his life, we're told, he was tempted to do things wrong, as we all are. But whereas we so often give in to the temptation, he never did. He was without sin. And because he was sinless on the one hand, and yet on the other he was of flesh and blood, so truly he was a representative of mankind, he was able to be offered up as a sacrifice for sin. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8 that sin was condemned in the flesh of Jesus. So in himself he destroyed sin, or the devil, and consequently the power of death over him was also destroyed. And although he died, God raised him from the dead, never to die again. And he was later able to say, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And it's through this that we have a hope. What Jesus has done for himself, he can now do for others. Because he has overcome the devil, the way has been opened whereby the sins of men and women can be completely forgiven for his sake. And if we believe the gospel that the Lord and his apostles taught and we're baptised into his name as we're commanded, then we can receive forgiveness of our sins now. And in the future, when Christ returns to establish his Father's kingdom upon earth, it will lead to a full release from sin and death. For this purpose, said John, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. When he returns, eventually all the effects of sin, evil and disease in all its forms will be eradicated from the earth. That is the promise of scripture. God grant that we might choose to accept his gracious invitation of life now, that the promised victory over the grave might be ours. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. 
you can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Thank you.